I'm a physician, and um, those of us that went to medical school, I realized that there others here that have not didn't go to medical school. But those of us that went to medical school spent a lot of time in medical school learning things that we no longer remember. Dr. Small is here. He's a surgeon. But if you ask me any anatomical question, I think I'd be hard-pressed to give an answer. But we had to study all those things. But certainly we had to study, you know, things like um, uh, very, very... Um, uh, biochemistry and so forth, and we don't remember anything like that. I have never seen a case of beriberi. Has anybody ever seen a case of beriberi? You have. Must have been in the mission field someplace. Here in the States. Alabama. Alab okay, well, that would be possible. That's sort of a mission field, I agree. Um, but, you know, we, we do treat things like hypertension and diabetes and, and coronary artery disease and stroke and gout and those kinds of things, and, and that's what we really um, need to look at. The reason that's significant is that if you look at um, this data, um, in the United States, if the 10 most common causes of death, and this was actually reported from up to 2016, but beyond it's the same, if you look at that, the top 10 uh, causes, five of them at least are related to our dietary and food choices. And then if you look for risk factors um, for chronic disease and deaths, it is dietary risk factors. Um, the magnitude of our food choices is really hardly realized. It's not tobacco use, high blood pressure, or anything like that. And this other um, slide brings it home even further. This was published in the JAMA in 2018. And what you see here actually is that it's not genetics or anything like that. People say it's my genes that I have all these diseases. But we, we realize that overall, it is related to suboptimal dietary choices. So I think that's why this is really important. Um, the majority of practitioners, we spend a lot of our time um, mopping up the floor instead of shutting off the faucet. And I get really frustrated when I see physicians um, who don't agree or believe that somehow turning off the faucet is really important. What we're going to talk about this afternoon is how to shut off the faucet. So let's just look at this paper. This paper was published in May of this year. Um, in May of this year in the Lancet, this is actually done every year. The, the global burden of health, um, of, uh, this global burden of disease study, this was published in May, but the data was from 1990 to 2017. The collaborators on this particular um, project are from all over the world and included places in the United States like the Mayo Clinic and Harvard School of Public Health are some of the collaborators on this. They, in their paper that they published in JAMA, excuse me, in the Lancet in 2019, what we aren't eating is killing us. Dietary risks are responsible for 11 million deaths, 255 million, million disability-adjusted life years, Cardiovascular disease deaths were followed by cancers and type 2 diabetes mellitus. These are diseases related to dietary choices. And then what aren't we eating that's killing us? Whole grains, fruit, and nuts in moderation. I list those three things first, one, two, and three, because those turn out to be the most significant dietary absences that are the cause of or associated with these diseases. Additionally, vegetables and seeds and too much salt. Now look at this, though. So far as looking at, at diet-related deaths by, by country, in terms of the lowest death rates, the United Kingdom ranked 23rd above Ireland, which was 24th, and Sweden, which was 25th. 
the United States ranked 43rd behind Rwanda and Nigeria. That's really significant. Um, now, how many of you were aware of the study that was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine in October just this month, right? And, and I write this, I said this is a contrary view. The Annals of Internal Medicine, for those who don't know, is really the, um, the signature journal in internal medicine. And it's actually also uh, the, the publication from the American College of Physicians. How many of you belong to the American College of Physicians, the ACP? Well, I do. That is the premier organization for internists, and so I belong to that organization. Um, so this is what that, this, this study said. Unprocessed, I'll just tell you the title, go over this really quickly. Unprocessed red meat and processed meat consumption, dietary guideline recommendations from Nutrirex Consortium. What they recommended is that the panel suggests that adults continue current unprocessed red meat consumption. It got a weak recommendation with low certainty evidence. It also recommended that they continue current processed meat consumption. Again, a weak recommendation, low certainty evidence. What is significant about that is that the major thing that they looked at was um, preferences of people in terms of diet. That was a major factor in these recommendations. Additionally, they said that people don't change anyway, so let them go ahead and eat their stuff. So that's really interesting, right? Um, so this is the challenges in nutrition science that we face. The challenges in nutrition science are several. I just want to read these quickly because we have so much interesting material to go over today. The totality of the evidence includes randomized controlled trials, epidemiologic studies, cohort studies, case control studies, and case series and reports, as well as systematic reviews and meta-analyses. So this is the type of data involved in nutrition science. And when we go over the stuff today, all the studies we go over will, be, will fit under one of these categories. Additionally, the prospective cohort studies are the strongest observational evidence because the intervention, which is the dietary exposure, precedes the development of disease. So that's the reason that prospective studies are best. Every year, patients are bombarded with the latest new miracle diet book that claims to promote health, affect weight loss, and reduce disease risks. How many of you hear your patients say, I've got this thing, what do you think, doc? Should I do this or not, right? And you get really confused. And so clinicians must have an understanding of the specific common attributes of healthy dietary patterns to appropriately assess the literature in this area. If you don't really appreciate what the common dietary recommendations are, then we're going to kind of not do a very good job. The last thing that's significant when you look at challenges in nutrition science is the funding source. Oftentimes, it's the private sector, and that is significant. Okay, who can tell me what city this is? Besides my twin sister. <laughs> she just mouthed it to me. Does anybody know where this is? It's not Singapore. It's not, not Chicago. Anybody else? Did I hear? What did you say? Hong Kong. Hong Kong, no. You know, a lot of you guys are on the right continent. But this is Bangkok. And I show this picture just because this actually in the middle here is a river. I wish I had a light and everything too, but this is a ri the river that goes through the city of Bangkok. For um, our, th our 29th wedding anniversary, my husband and I went to, went to Thailand last year. 
had the most amazing time on the planet. You can't have a better time anytime, anywhere. It was amazing. Now, I show you this, and my husband planned the whole trip. He plans everything, and he planned a first-class trip that could not be reproduced by anybody. He is awesome. But I show you that city because I want to show you this. Whenever you look at nutrition studies, what you're looking at is what does the overall skyline show? You notice that some of the buildings are short, some of them are medium height, some of them are skyscrapers, right? So as you look at the nutrition literature, what you look at is the overall skyline. What is the strength and weight of the evidence? That's what you're really looking at. When each individual study comes out and you grab hold of it, you may want to look at other studies and say, how does, do these studies fit in with what is the, the body of the whole literature? All right. So what I'm going to cover is this. And this will only be in, um, in, in, in certain points here. Consensus views on nutrition. What do Americans... I was going to take Filipinos out. I gave this talk in, in um, Philippines a couple years ago. And um, so I, and I really... I, I made some adjustments, a lot of adjustments to it as the literature has increased. But we're going to talk about cardiovascular disease and insulin resistance and briefly hit on cancer. In the interest of time, this material really takes uh, probably a couple hours or so, hour and a half to go over. So whatever we can get done in an hour, we're going to cover that. It's going to be very fast-paced, and so um, it will be on PDF so people can get that. And key points about macronutrients and so forth. So what we're going to do is this works really nicely for, for, a, for a wide variety of audiences. And so the framework we're going to look at this as, as, as this nutrition science is, the framework is going to be what we will call the red box foods, the yellow box foods, and the green box foods. So what does that mean? Um, if you look at these uh, studies, the, the, the red box foods, the weight of the evidence and the broad consensus is that these foods promote harm. It is very difficult to find a paper that would say contrary to the fact that they produce harm. The green box foods are foods where there's broad consensus in the literature that these foods are health-promoting. It's very difficult to find a study that would say that these foods are not health-promoting. The yellow box foods are where the controversy is. The yellow box foods, in fact, are they look good compared to the red box foods. I'm going to point you out to something here very significant. Boy, do I wish I had a pointer. Anyway, I may, might have come unprepared. But anyway. No, there's nothing. I can use this, I guess. There we go. I'll use this. So, so when you look at these yellow boxes, this is just a little bit of an aside. Um, you see this right here, uh, eggs. The um, Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee in 2015 said that, you know, if this is the initial pass they said that eggs are fine because dietary cholesterol ingestion affects the, the serum cholesterol very little. It's usually saturated fat and trans fat, so go ahead and eat eggs. This was the initial statement. With that, the, the media picked it up and said butter is back. Well, when they finally published their 2015-2020 guidelines, they said Actually, we should limit that. We shouldn't eat it that much, right? And then when you look at some studies in cancer on whole milk, and, and we won't be able to get to cancer, I'm pretty sure, but looking at whole milk, in January of 2018, um, 
in the general prostate. There was a study that was published that whole milk probably contributes to the recurrence of um, cancers and also in, uh, uh, if the man is obese. So there's lots of stuff. So these, these yellow box foods really are debatable. What we know in America is that the majority of, of people derive the, the majority of their calories from red and yellow box foods. That's where the majority of Americans spend their time eating. So we're going to be um, looking at that. First of all, we're going to look at um, processed meat. Any, uh, processed meat is any meat that has been done something to, cured, smoked, fermented, whatever. It includes all those things, hot dogs, bolognese, and sausage, all that stuff. This is processed food. Okay, we're going to, uh, red meat, red meat is any mammalian muscle meat. So pork is not the other white meat. Any mammalian muscle meat is, is red meat. Okay, we're going to skip added sugar because it's fairly um, um, easy to go over. But refined grains. Has anybody heard that carbs are bad for you? Okay, I think everybody heard, don't eat carbs, carbs are bad. This is one of my soapbox items. So first of all, what we're going to look at is the anatomy of a grain. The anatomy of a grain, the grain has three parts, the bran, the germ, and the endosperm. This is the whole grain. On the left of, on my left, we see the whole grains. You see the, the wonderful quinoa under pseudo-grains? Pseudo, uh, quinoa is botanically a seed, but functionally it's a grain. So these are very excellent things. And in their to totality, you can see that if they have all these parts, that's a grain. Now, the problem is, if you deplete the, the grain of the bran and the germ, you end up with a very nutritionally depleted product with just the endosperm. It has 80% less fiber and 80% less nutrients. Okay? So, how many of you think this looks like a wonderful slice of loaf of bread? It looks good, doesn't it? Right. Okay, so what's the issue, though, with this loaf of bread? Does anybody want to shout out? What's the issue with this loaf of bread? Unbleached. Unbleached, okay? So this is a, when you see wheat bread, multigrain, seven-grain bread, this is a marketing trick to get you to think that this is healthy bread. Now, the question is, how do I know? What is this product? If you see unbleached, enriched, that means that this, they have taken out the, the good stuff um, by refining processes. Now they've added back seven grains to what they already depleted. So you recognize that the only difference between that and white bread is that it's not bleached. That's the only difference. So what you're looking for is whole grain. The, the first point I want everyone to take away from here is when you go to buy bread in the store, you, the first word you want to have after ingredient is the word whole. Then you know you can buy it. Whole. Okay. If it says whole, buy it. If it says unbleached, don't buy it. If it says enriched, don't buy it. All right. That's the first thing. And I have a couple stories. So why, why is it that carbohydrates have such a bum rap? If you look at the, my left-hand side and your left-hand side and your right-hand side. On the left-hand side is green box foods. On the right-hand side is red box foods. And so why would you want to lump 
lentils with candy and say, don't eat carbohydrate? Or why would you want to lump fruit with fruit loops? <laughs> it doesn't work. And so carbohydrates, what I try to do is to get people to stop saying carbohydrate and instead talk about whole grain or refined grain. It's much more clarifying for people when they begin to appreciate that. Now, ultra-processed foods. These ultra-processed foods are industrially prepared. They are scientifically engineered to keep people coming back for more. Additionally, they are highly palatable. Highly palatable. How do I know? <laughs> I'm a human being. That's how I know. Now, at this point, I'm going to give everybody a spoiler alert. There was a very nice article. It was actually a viewpoint that came out. Actually, this is great. This came out in JAMA, October 22. Who can tell me what October 22 is? It's the great disappointment. On October 22, published in JAMA of this year, just more than a week ago, they published an article on PBMA. Who can tell me what PBMA is? Raise your hand if you can tell me what PBMA is. Did I hear somebody? Plant-based Meat alternatives. Guess which two products they picked specifically in this article? Who said that? Mike Holly. Mike, have you ever eaten moondrop grapes before? These are delicious, so guess what? You get the bag of moondrop grapes. <laughs> You're welcome, Mike. <laughs> yeah. So, guess what? In the Impossible Burger and Beyond Meat, those are highly processed. It is true they're using plant protein. One is using soy, the other using pea. Beyond uh, Meat is using pea. The Impossible uh, uh, Burger is using soy protein. But these are highly processed food. The upshot of it is do not think that just because it's plant-based does not mean it's ultra-processed and carries the same problems that the others do. It's interesting. Has anybody eaten an Impossible Burger? Does anybody like an Impossible Burger? I can't stand it. I, and I thought, something's wrong with this. They add heme to it. Now, we don't, we don't know if the heme that is dangerous, and we'll talk about it as we go along, is, this, is the, you know, the heme in meat is dangerous. We don't know if the plant heme is bad or not, but we do know that heme iron causes cancer. And so that Impossible Burger is impossible. Don't eat it. Okay, so these foods are highly palatable, and my recommendation is the Impossible Burger not be eaten. Now, this is what I was talking about, the Dietary Guidelines um, Advisory Committee. The Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee is a team of, of nutrition scientists. Those nutrition scientists come together every five years to determine what should Americans eat. Remember I told you about the egg situation that happened already? When they published the guidelines right here, for example, they said... A diet higher in plant-based foods, such as vegetables, fruits, whole grains, legumes, nuts, and seeds, and lower in calories in animal-based foods. The media and missed this fact and said, butter is back. Eat eggs. No problem. 
but it is more health promoting and is associated with less environmental impact than is the current U.S. diet. Every five years, these guidelines are published, and this was published, and we're due for a new uh, set of guidelines in 2020. Or, like this nutrition um, writer, eat food, not too much, mostly plants, and that's what we're supposed to do. And this is a secular guy that wrote this. So, what is a plant-based diet? I try to get away from words like vegan and vegetarian because it is very varied, varied what they actually mean. So plant-based diet means that one derives their calories for the most part from health-promoting foods. They eat in the green box. And it's anywhere from 80% to 100%. And the plate then is prioritized in a, in a green box food area. And look at all those nice, wonderful things there that we get to eat. Now, the Mediterranean diet. Let me just say something about the Mediterranean diet. And people think about this kind of thing. We think about the, the, the Mediterranean diet. The Mediterranean diet actually comes from three areas. Um, Greece, Crete, and southern Italy. And that particular geographic area, people recognize that the, that, that population of, of people... Uh, had less access to health care, yet they lived longer and they had less chronic disease. So people said, let's study these people and see what is it about them. They have no health care. They have no chronic diseases. They're living longer. And they discovered several things. This diet is not homogeneous. It changes by region. Um, so it's really an issue of geography and time that determines the Mediterranean diet. So if you look at this here, for example, let me see if I can get this, uh, find the pointer. Can't find the pointer. You know, you hate that. Ah, there we are. Okay, so so based on um, traditional dietary patterns, um, these people, they, the food, they got points for eating grains, beans, fruits, vegetables, olive oil, fish, and a small amount of wine. And they lost points if they ate meat, including poultry and dairy products. There were two major trials. One of them was the PREDIMED trial, which is a primary um, Prevention trial. Is anybody familiar with the PREDIMED trial and the issues surrounding that, that study? It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine like in 2016 or so, and then it was republished again in 2018 because there were some issues with randomization. Um, families were saying, hey, I'll just tuck myself onto this, and this group without being randomized to that particular group. But with the PREDIMED study, there were several arms. One of them was nuts. The other was olive oil. The Lyon Heart Study was a secondary prevention trial. And so that's really important. So this is what um, was found. There are, several, there are three papers I'm just going to bring up here. Um, and especially when we look at this paper right here, when they deconstructed the results of the Mediterranean diet, what they found was that more plants, better outcomes, more meat, worse outcomes, and fish, olive oil, and alcohol were not the primary benefit. In other words, the benefit was related to plant-based food, particularly this one, when they deconstructed that adherence study in particular. Um, so that is really significant. It's the plant-based products that, that which we, um, the, the benefit is derived from. So that's really significant. Um, Here's a quiz. Now, I'm going to have a show of hands, okay? So, which of the following is the number one source of calories among Americans age two and up? Okay, so, sugar-sweetened beverages. Okay, or some. Uh, dessert. 
Okay. We have two hands. My twin sister, who's been to my lecture before at ASI. And, uh, okay. And um, breads, bagels, and rolls. Okay. Couple for breads, bacon, and rolls. And uh, cheese and cheese products. Okay, great. Well, the answer, do you like dates? The answer is dessert. It's dessert. Okay, so you get some. I love dates. You're welcome. Okay. Um, So the first thing then is grain-based desserts. Cakes, cookies, pies, cobbler, sweet rolls, pastries, donuts. I don't like donuts, but I like pie. And I love cookies. Almost any kind of cookie will do. Okay, now, what is number two? What do you suppose number two is? All right. Number two is breads. Now, having said bread, I hate that it says bread. It means to say refined bread, right? This is white bread and rolls, mixed grain bread. That's, the, that's that nice brown thing that unbleached and enriched on it. And then flavored bread. I don't know what that is. A pumpkin bread? I don't know. And bagels. Now, what is number three? What do you suppose number three is? So who said, somebody said? Cheese. Cheese? What is it, chicken? It's chicken. It's chicken. How many chickens? No, no, no. How many chickens are eaten every hour by Americans? Over a million chickens are eaten every hour. Almost 25,000 chickens are eaten every single day by Americans. How many of you have ever seen a chicken truck? You know, the big thing going on the road? And don't you want to, like, rather than unleash all the cages and let the chickens out? <laughs> you really do. And you see the feathers flying, and you feel so sorry for those poor chickens? It's terrible. Chicken. Americans eat a lot of chicken, okay? What's, the, what's number, number four? What did you say? Sugar-sweetened beverages. Now, what is number five? It's not cheese. I heard it before in the room. Someone said it. Pizza. Pizza. See? It's pizza. And pizza is in its own category. So this is interesting. If you look at this list here on the board, what we notice is that the majority of Americans are deriving their calories primarily. They are prioritizing their plates on red box foods and yellow box foods. What we aren't eating is killing us. That's what was discovered in the Global Burden of Disease Study. Additionally, I'll show you this this interesting graphic. And what you'll see here is what they say is 70% of our calories come from processed and ultra-processed food. Now, let me show you this. So this here is obvious. This is the industrially produced stuff, 58%. You see all the stuff there, including pizza, soft drinks, and so forth like that. 30% is supposed to be the healthier one because this is that um, orange book is the unprocessed or minimally processed food. When you look at this, though, you notice that 14% is meat, milk, and eggs. That's still bad. And then 14% then is the root vegetables, but the fruit includes fruit juice. And then at the top, that 12% is added sweeteners, sweeteners and animal fats and so forth. Essentially, if you really break this down, Probably maybe 10% of what we eat has any good for us whatsoever. 
So that's really important. So what we're going to look at then now, we're going to change gears, and we're going to look at um, these entities. We'll cover cardiovascular disease and insulin resistance um, for sure, and I'll just make a brief word on cancer because we won't be able to get to obesity and the macronutrients in the time that we have. The first thing we look at is cardiovascular disease, and this study here from 1953, JAMA was around all that, that long. This is what really got us onto things. So if you look at the coronary arteries of a lot of us in the room, probably a lot of us have coronary artery disease. And this was taken from these uh, soldiers that saw action in Korea, U.S. soldiers that saw action in Korea. These U.S. soldiers, the average age were 22.1 years old, and 77% of them had coronary artery disease when they did the autopsy. So very significant. And then, of course, we are very proud about the, of the blue zones because here we see Loma Linda. Many of us trained at, at Loma Linda uh, for medical school and dental school and others and so forth. Um, but these are the blue zones. And as you look at the blue zone areas, you recognize that these people enjoy extraordinary longevity. And what is it that binds these blue zones together? It is really what they eat. In particular, it's the legumes and all these kinds of things that really uh, bind them together. If they have like poultry and meat and eggs, it's on the periphery of the, of the plate and it's on special occasions like holidays and so forth. So that's, that's what really binds these uh, blue zones together. Again, what we're going to look at is um, how these red box, yellow box and green box foods affect cardiovascular health. That's how we're going to look at this. And um, this particular study right here. So red and processed meat in the 2000s, Red meat um, began to be recognized by the World Health Organization as a public health crisis. If you were to put in PubMed red meat in 1970, you would get eight hits on red meat in, Pub, in PubMed. I put into PubMed this month, there's about a, 10 days or so, I got put it, I just said, let me try it, red meat. Almost 7,000 articles came up on, on red, red meat. And red meat, there are several different things that you see here. Remember the, global, the study in the global burden of disease? Red meat really favors significantly in causing harm. So on the contrary, if you eat a meatless diet, the benefits are significant. Dr. Key, this gentleman right here, is from Oxford University. He's an epidemiologist. He is also, was also involved in the Epic Oxford study as well. But what you see is that those who, and who eat a plant-based diet enjoy significant benefits of reduction in mortality and incidence of, of a cardiovascular disease, as well as mortality um, from, from cardiovascular disease. This uh, study right here was a systematic review and meta-analysis. Um, this one was, was a prospective study, as is this. But this uh, study here also looked at cancers in patients who had meatless diets, and the risk of cancers was significantly decreased amongst those who ate plant-based diet as opposed to a diet that was in animal uh, products. Um, this is awesome stuff. So the question is, what is it about these red box foods, this meat, that causes problems? Um, and it turns out that the gut microbiome is extremely important with, with what we eat. It has inordinate effect on our cardiovascular health. There were at least four papers 
that I used as I looked at this, this data, one of them was, was published in Nature in 2011. That was a very elegant study. And that one in Nature gave people some, this material I'm about to tell you about. And what was happening to the people was they were measuring this substance that we're going to discuss now, plus cholesterol, triglycerides, and glucose. So what happens then when somebody eats, as you see here, cheese and eggs? So cheese and eggs and some sort of meat. In cheese and eggs and also fish, there's something called phosphatidylcholine. And in meat, there's also L-carnitine. The phosphatidylcholine can also occur in meat as well. What happens when you eat that? Well, you eat that, the gut flora will then um, digest or change that into trimethylamine. It goes through the liver, and in the liver, it is oxidized to trimethylamine N-oxide. Trimethylamine N-oxide is the substance that is very pro-inflammatory. In fact, it increases platelet aggregation and several other things and results in cardiovascular disease. So if you, if you look um, at this particular substance, trimethylamine N-oxide, you can actually predict 30-day mortality or incidence and recurrence of cardiovascular disease. So what they did in the, in the journal Nature as well as in the uh, journal JAC, Journal American College of Cardiology, published in 2017, did a very similar research and would give people um, one little tablet. They tried to get, they tried to, to convince vegan vegetarians to eat a steak. What would you do? They didn't either. As I said, they gave them a tablet, one tablet, and and check this TMAO to see if it was if it went up or not. And the fact of the matter is, just this one dose, nothing happened. They didn't increase at all. But in Nature and the paper in Jack, they gave the people, also in the New England Journal of Medicine, they gave them significant, over like two months or so, more of this substance orally, um, and some they gave eggs to. Um, and those, those people actually developed uh, atherosclerotic vessel disease. So it's a very significant thing. And, and when they measured... Um, cholesterol, total cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, triglycerides, blood sugar, those did not change. What did change was TMAO. There is something about the interaction of this um, meat with the gut microbiome that produces this toxic substance that causes um, cardiovascular disease. Fascinating. The Cleveland Clinic actually is the only place you can measure this. You can send somebody's blood to the, to the, to the, um, the Cleveland Clinic. Someone just had a myocardial infarction in the emergency department, send a sample up to the Cleveland Clinic, they'll run it and tell you what the chance of them developing an event in 30 days is. Very, very elegant work. Um, I'm not going to let sugar off the table, and I will be very honest and tell you my weakness. Does anybody know my weakness for my twin sister? My weakness is sugar. You know, and I think I blame my parents for that. When we, we are immigrants... When we came to the States, my, my parents are plant-based, but it was kind of crazy plant-based. It was like, nothing that tastes good is good for you. <laughs> so we never had sugar. My mother still can't make dessert, and she, she swears to me I can make cake. I said, Mommy, you cannot make cake. But they didn't give us any dessert. When we tasted sugar, sugar is highly palatable. And I think the majority of the five of us siblings enjoyed sugar, except I have one brother that wasn't the buyer of this. Now, what is the most um, dangerous aisle in the supermarket? 
the cereal aisle. Look at this beautiful array of colors of all these cereal boxes. Isn't it amazing? I have to tell you a funny story. I was in the grocery store. Um, I need to actually tell you another interesting... Well, no, this, I'll tell you this one first here. I was in the grocery store. And I, uh, this little... I don't know who she thought I was. This nice little old lady, looking very puzzled, came up to me with a can of, of beans. And she said, can you help me? And I said, well, sure, ma'am. What do you need? <laughs> I, I'm just shopping, but I don't know. I said, what do you need? She said, well, I was just diagnosed with, with, uh, with, with diabetes. And the doctor told me I can't eat salt. What, which beans should I get? I said, well, do you have hypertension? She says, no. I just have diabetes. Are you, are you sure you don't have She says, no. She goes, I have diabetes. I said, okay, ma'am. Listen, I said, I have a little lesson with her about canned food and salt in general, whatnot. You know, I didn't know what to tell her. And so she said, thank you for helping me. And she got some other kind of beans, and she left. Beans are good for you. Now I come to the cereal aisle. And she's in the cereal aisle. And she's walking up and down the cereal aisle, and she says to me, Ma'am, can you help me again? Which cereal should I get? I said, None. <laughs> and the fact of the matter is, what well, she said to me, What should I get? I said, I said, Oatmeal. I said, By the way, I don't like oatmeal, but buy oatmeal. It's good for you. Well, these two studies are really important because what they tell us is that both of these tell us that, um, and let me just add some numbers on here. Um, if you look at the hazard ratio for various percentages of sugar intake, the average American eats at least 10% of their calories in sugar, simple sugar. And it can go up as high as, I don't know what. But if you eat 10% of your calories in sugar versus 25% of your calories in sugar, the hazard ratio changes anywhere from 1.3 to 2.75. That means 30% more chance of getting cardiovascular disease to, you know, to three times that amount of eating sugar. If you eat 10%, you know how we talk about number needed to treat? We look at number needed to harm. 10% of your calories in sugar, number needed to harm is 265. In other words, one person in 265, 265 people eating 10% of their calories in sugar will end up with cardiovascular disease. Whereas the number needed to harm at 25% is 22 people. That's significant, right? And so, so sugar has, this, has a significant effect on cardiovascular disease. So again, if it tastes good, don't eat it. So um, here we see, um, this was pub published in Circulation, and the recommendation from the American Heart Association for sugar, you need to count. For women, it's six teaspoons of added sugar a day. That's not a whole lot. That's like a mouthful or something. And men, it's nine teaspoons a day. In soda pop, regular 20-ounce soda pop, 15 teaspoons is in the, in the soda pop. The average American eats 23 teaspoons of sugar a day. Now, for us Seventh-day Adventists, we love to say, I don't use sugar. I use, what's this stuff here called? Agave. Isn't that what we say? Don't use sugar, we use agave. My mom used to have us, she had us fooled. She said she doesn't use sugar, she uses honey. Well, honey is on the list. And she used to, can you imagine sweetening lemonade with honey? You know, <laughs> it was terrible. You can't take it anywhere. And sometimes she used brown sugar. And she said, mommy, we can't take that anywhere. But anyway, all this stuff is the same. It's still sugar, added sugar. So that's important. Um, 
this really relates here to um, trying to look at the dose-response um, ratio for fruit. If someone's going to eat fruit and vegetable intake and, and impact cardiovascular disease, what dose of fruit do you need? And some patients need you to speak in terms of dose because that's all they can think about. I have to eat all this stuff. This was a very elegant study, actually. And um, what they found out in this particular study that was published in the International Journal of Epidemiology, um, does anybody here know Sigvi Tonstad? Anybody know Sigvi Tonstad? His wife was one of the, she's an incredible researcher in this area. But um, she looked at 95 studies worldwide, and it turns out that two and a half servings per day is what you need. The greatest part of the curve is between that going from zero to two and a half. If we can get patients to go from zero fruit a day to two and a half a day, there's clinical benefit in doing that. And so two and a half a day is this. I tell people two and a half a day is a small banana, an apple, and some broccoli. Small banana, apple, and broccoli. That's what you have to eat. Two and a half a day, minimum. When you look at cancer research, then they say seven fruits a day is what you need. But the benefit is significant. So 8%, two and a half servings, decreases the risk of coronary heart disease by 8%, stroke 16%, and all-cause mortality 10%. So very significant. It turns out that this uh, right here, the whole grains, whole grains actually seem to have the maximum benefit on cardiovascular health than anything. In that paper on the global burden of disease, what I didn't tell you was that um, in terms of worldwide, Whole grains are responsible for, for the greatest number of deaths, the lack of them, the greatest number of deaths in women worldwide, the lack of whole grains. In men, it turns out it's fruit and high salt. And then second after that is whole grains. So whole grains are very important, and that seems to have the greatest benefit on health, although all these items, fruit, vegetables, everything. This is going to be a disappointing slide for some of us because... Plant-based diets can be healthy and unhealthy. And so this is the group from the Harvard School of Public Health. They've done a tremendous work. And they look at three groups of studies all the time. The um, Nurses' Health Study 1 and 2, and then the Health Professionals' um, Follow-Up Study. 4.8 million person years. That's a lot because over 20 years, over 200,000 people were involved in this study. So over 4.8 million person years of follow-up. Plant-based diet. So the whole thing is plant-based diets are good. What they decided to do is the data they were getting didn't look great. So the question is, what's unhealthy? What's healthy plant-based diet? So we, all, we know what all the healthy is. The unhealthy, though, is those mashed potatoes for Thanksgiving that's about to come up next month. And french fries. And juice. And potato chips. These are not good. So all these, um, all these things, these are, these are unhealthy plant-based diet. But look at the data on that. When you separate these things, you see these lines here, this red line here? This is the healthy plant-based diet. If you lump them all together overall, you look as if there's little benefit to eating a plant-based diet. But when you look instead at the healthy plant-based diet, you actually have a 25% reduction in cardiovascular disease incidence, whereas with the unhealthy plant-based diet, you have a 32% increase in cardiovascular disease. These cannot be lumped together. We're talking about healthy plant-based versus unhealthy plant-based diet. Now, this is one of my most favorite things on the planet. Why, what is it about plant-based food that confers health? 
What's the mechanism? So, um, first of all, it replaces disease-promoting foods, which is very good. But in their own right, these foods function as antioxidants. They're rich in phytochemicals and polyphenols, which are really, really good in, um, in, in, in reversing disease. Now, I'm going to talk to you about improved endothelial function in a minute, but they also reduce inflammation. They alter the gut microbes. I talked about before the, the way the food interacts with the gut, the gut microbiome. It lowers the blood pressure via high potassium, low potassium. It decreases lipids. Let me tell you a story about this endothelial function issue. I had a resident. I, have two, I had two residents. One of them was a vegan, wonderful guy, very persuasive. And there was another resident, brilliant guy. He was from the University of Kentucky. We are in Ohio. Everybody knows we're in Ohio. We're not in California. There are a lot of skinny people in Southern California. And there are a lot of skinny people in Washington State, where I come from. But we're from Ohio. And this resident was from the University of Kentucky. So this resident, this my other resident, who was an Adventist, said to him, you know something? I think you should stop eating meat. I, I think you should go on a plant-based diet. Try it for a week. The guy's, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. I'm going to die. I'm from the South. You know, I eat meat and potatoes. And he goes, no, you need to try this. You know, eat, eat, eat a plant-based diet just for one week. So finally, this resident from Kentucky said, okay, I'll try it. I'll go on a plant-based diet for a week. Now, this happened about four or five years ago. So after the week was up, this resident came to me and said, you know something? Oh, by the way, I told you the guy, was, he was brilliant. He came to me and said, you won't believe this. My mind is clear. And I was like, I wonder why. I don't understand. I really didn't understand. I mean, I've always been plant-based, so I, I don't know. I said, well, what can I do to make my mind, like, really, really clear? So he said, I, I'm, my mind is, I had no clue why his mind was so cleared up until I studied this thing here. So all, we, we all know that the endothelium is really a finely tuned piece of our body. And the endothelium produces nitric oxide. If you do something to damage the endothelium, it does not produce nitric oxide. It turns out that every fatty meal you eat is pro-inflammatory. And what happens is normally, in a normal person, the, the endothelium, you produce nitric oxide, that endothelium will, will dilate, allow more blood flow, and so you feel good, right? And, uh, but when you eat a pro-inflammatory diet, a, deep, a diet that's high in meat, um, cheese and, and all this kind of stuff, and, and beef and, I don't know, terrible things, um, it actually causes vasoconstriction of your blood vessels, for at least five hours. So, you go to lunch. Let's say you ate breakfast, and they ate a bacon, cheese, and something else on a roll. And they're, they're, they have this pro-inflammatory response. The blood vessels constrict. What happens in five hours? Lunch. It's lunchtime. And then they eat all the same stuff all over again. I've seen the stuff in the doctor's lounge. Makes my head spin. I'm like, are you really going to eat that? Matter of fact, one day. I was so concerned. I saw this doctor reaching for something to eat. I said, that thing's going to kill you in an hour. And he looked at me like I was crazy. <laughs> but, but I mean, it's, this, it's like oozing with things. And I was like, this is really bad. So in five hours, you eat the same thing again. And you get more shutdown, right? And then um, 
Another five hours, you eat, eat supper. None of us think about what the blood vessels are doing on an hourly basis. We always think of coronary disease in terms of the lifetime thing. We look at over years or months, but we don't think about the hour-by-hour regulation of our, uh, of our blood vessels to, to allow us to, to, uh, the organs and so forth to function. So this pro-inflammatory thing is very significant. And when I figured out there was nitric oxide that was causing the problems, there's some other proteins also called NU5GC. That's also another pro-inflammatory thing, plus the TMAO. When you add the lack of nitric oxide, TMAO, and NU5GC, all these things, your brain is not functioning. There's some guy, um, England or London or something's got talent. What's the program? Something's got talent. That guy that runs that program. Who? Okay, yes, he went plant-based. You know what he said? The first thing he said was, my mind has cleared up. There's something about that. If we have one reason as Seventh-day Adventists to be plant-based, is that the Holy Spirit needs to talk to us. And if it is possible that this stuff is making our minds clogged up so we can't even think, we need to abandon it and go to a plant-based diet. This mechanism to me was just opened my eyes. It was just astounding that there was actually a physiologic reason why the resident said my mind has cleared up. So I think that's really um, significant. Look at uh, multiple randomized controlled trials have demonstrated the benefit of of a vegan diet or plant-based diet and soy, nuts, and fiber, and so forth. And if you look at all that, the benefit and decrease of Total cholesterol as well as LDL, LDL, LDL cholesterol is significant. I want to make a caveat with nuts. I love nuts. My sister and I were talking today. My family has nuts somewhere in our genetic pool. My family loves nuts. I can eat nuts by the gallon. Just reach my whole fist in there and grab nuts to eat all day long. But you've got you to gotta monitor that because they're very calorie dense. And so that's the issue there. All right. Um, let me skip along. Oh, no, no. I won't skip along. Um, let me just... I, I just this, this was... Um, published in a wonderful journal in Jack also recently. And um, I just want to point to this juicing thing. In case anybody has a question about juicing. Um, Juicing, the the data on juicing is mixed. But especially if you remove the pulp, then it is not recommended. If you leave the pulp behind, again, the data is still mixed. There is no strong data on juicing. In other words, the studies that have been done on juicing have not been compared to a raw plant-based diet or, or other things like that. So it's very difficult to tell if there's really significant benefit there or not. Okay, and we talk about nuts and so forth on that side. I'm going to talk about one of my favorite topics now, which is insulin resistance. If there is a disease that we have to deal with every day as internists, it's diabetes and insulin resistance. And I believe that the diet that is best for diabetics is not understood by the majority of physicians. So again, we're going to look at the same framework, the red box foods, yellow box foods, green box foods, and we're going to see how those foods really apply in this particular disease. So half of adults in the U.S. have diabetes or prediabetes. And and I'm just going to use this, this, this banana to symbolize fruit. Um... What happens when you eat a banana? Piece of fruit. So first of all, the glucose goes up. And then um, insulin is signaled, and it binds to its receptor, and through a series of intracellular intermediaries, GLUT4 goes to the surface, 
and takes in glucose. Okay. Let's say now that somebody develops diabetes. And that person that has diabetes eats a banana. The blood sugar goes up. It signals insulin. But insulin is not acting. And so the blood sugar stays up. And now we blame the banana. Is it the banana's fault? The banana is an innocent bystander. Now, the reason I get really worked up when I talk about this is this right here. One of my colleagues who I've worked with now for a very long time, uh, almost, almost three decades, told my residents, all the residents, that fruit is bad for everybody. Why? It's fructose. All fructose is bad, I said. But that's not true. And he said, it's true. I said, it's not true. I said, there's something as fiber and... I mean, so when he left, I, I, actually, I made a presentation about food as medicine to my residents, so they begin to get the point. But this is, this is really important. Um, so what is it that causes insulin resistance? Is it, the, is it the, the, the fruit, or what is it exactly? So this is what's happening. When you eat the banana, it stimulates production of insulin. Insulin binds to its receptor, tyrosine kinase, which then phosphorylates the intracellular insulin receptor substrate. That then binds to and activates a significant protein, phosphatidylinositol 3, which then, some more intermediaries, sends GLUT4 to the surface and insulin is taken up. But there is a problem inside the liver cell or the skeletal muscle cell, and that is the accumulation of fat, lipid subtypes. We know what these are. These are, uh, these are diacylglycerol. I'll skip these uh, slides here in the, mid, in the instant of time just to show this. This physician was at Yale, and this was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in um, 2014. And this was really nice research. Additionally, there's a diabetologist at the University of uh, Texas San Antonio, Dr. Ralph DeFranzo, and he's done a lot of work. He's an internationally known diabetologist. He's done a lot of work in this same area here and the same thing. What happens now is fat accumulation in the skeletal muscle and the liver cells. And basically what you end up having is insulin resistance. In the skeletal muscle, there's decreased glucose uptake. And in the liver, you now have gluconeogenesis and very little, very little glycogenesis. So, so this is the issue that causes this problem. And so adiposity, excess calories, excess dietary fat, inflammation, oxidative stress, mitochondrial dysfunction, all these things are what is causing the problem. It's the fat inside the skeletal muscle and the liver cell that is causing the problem. It is not the fruit. So it is really not evidence-based medicine to tell our patients not to eat fruit. I had a, uh, an experience recently. It was like... Um, this happened in, um, in August. I was on the ward. I was attending on the ward. And um, my resident just came out of the room shaking his head because I had a 29-year-old uh, young man that was, um, was, he had a very, very bad, di- bad diabetic foot infection. He was, he'd had diabetes. He was very obese, and he was probably going to lose his foot. So the resident came out of the room and said, oh, this guy's non-compliant. He keeps asking for fruit. <laughs> I said... Give the man his fruit. 
couldn't believe it. I mean, I just, I said, I, I, so then I gave him a whole lecture. I don't know that they really appreciated my lecture, but I gave him a lecture, and nonetheless, okay. So the question then is, what is it that really causes insulin resistance? If you look at the data, processed meat is the greatest cause of insulin resistance because of the excess fat that you find in this, in these, in meat. And if you combine these two together, these two columns together, they far outweigh the sugar-sweetened beverages in causing diabetes and insulin resistance. This really is the problem. Now, let's look at this here again. If you look at this slide, this shows you all the various mechanisms that cause, um, that cause uh, type 2 diabetes insulin resistance. The branched-chain amino acids, increased um, saturated fats, um, Advanced glycation end products. This is the heme iron. I talked to you about the Impossible Burger. That's got heme iron in it also. Nitrosamine is a direct carcinogen. And that's what's found in meat. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org.